So welcome to Table Talk. Table Talk is a round table teaching session which happens twice a month. This year, or rather last year, 2020, we've been talking about eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Of course, that's been extended now because of the COVID-19 lockdowns. But in our year of Table Talk, we've been talking about and referring to three different systems of eschatology about what Christians believe and think will happen in the future, what we sometimes call Bible prophecy. Now, we have to be really careful with this when we look at this subject because none of these opinions on the end times are saving matters. Holding any one of these views is not a test of orthodoxy. Being a premillennialist or even a dispensationalist will, I can assure you, not keep you out of heaven. So I wonder, can you remember what the three views, the three classical views of eschatology are? We call them premillennialism, amillennialism and postmillennialism. Premillennialism, two distinct types of that viewpoint, classic premillennialists, dispensationalist premillennialists. That's the belief that's fairly common among American evangelicals and here in Northern Ireland among Baptists and Pentecostals and Brethren Christians. Then there's amillennialism, more often found in Reformed circles, among Baptists and Presbyterians and Independents and so on. In fact, it was through the reading of a book called The Momentous Event by the Reverend William J. Greer of Belfast back in my early 20s that awakened me to the possibility that there might be a different viewpoint on the end times from the dispensationalist charts that had guided my thoughts during my teens. And then there's something called post-millennialism. It's a highly optimistic viewpoint, where before the Lord returns on the last day with his saints and for his saints and to judge the world, there will be a great time of revival, where the nations of the world will turn from their sin, accept Christ as Saviour and as their King. And that will be the millennium, a time of great peace and prosperity, where Christ's kingdom shall encircle the globe. And that will prepare the way for the coming of Christ to establish his eternal kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, right throughout our series on the end times, we've spoken quite a bit about premillennialism. We've spoken quite a lot about amillennialism. That's because that's my own personal viewpoint. But looking back over the series, over 2020 and this few months that we've had in 2021, it seems to me that I have totally ignored the postmillennialist viewpoint. And although I'm not a postmillennialist, I do think it would be fair to give it some thought. So this lesson is about postmillennialism. Let's call it the Puritan hope. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast.
So let's look at the Puritan hope. We call it that because the Puritans were always optimistic about the future. The list of Puritan divines and preachers and writers who embraced the post-millennialist viewpoint is impressive, far more than we could ever hope to list here, but included it men like John Calvin and John Owen, people like William Perkins, Thomas Manton, John Flavel, people like Richard Sibbs and Samuel Rutherford, the hymn writer Isaac Watts, the commentator Matthew Henry, people like William Carey, the great missionary founder, many, many more. When we look to America, Benjamin B. Warfield, J. Gresham Makem, Lorraine Buetner, their eschatological hope represented a longing in the hearts of Puritans and Puritan thinkers to see the whole world one for Christ. It's what inspired men like William Carey to carry the gospel to far-off lands. They were influenced by verses like we find in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6 down to verse 9, where it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the winged child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy it all in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaac Watts, the Congregationalist dissenter, wrote these words, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. People in realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song and infant voices shall proclaim their earthly blessings on his name. So let's look at post-millennialism. And let's ask ourselves first, what do we mean exactly when we talk about a millennium? Well, the word millennium simply means a thousand years. It's taken from the Latin mille, thousand, and annum, year. So when 1999 ended, we were told we were entering a new millennium, a new thousand-year period, and we had the millennium bug. Does anybody remember that? Didn't happen. In the Bible, the millennium is found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, where John writes, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then in verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now some Christians view that thousand-year reign of Christ as a literal time of thousand years. Others, including the amillennialists, regard it as symbolic of a long time of peace. But what really divides opinion 
is the juxtaposition of the return of Christ and the millennium. Will the Lord Jesus return before the thousand years, like the premillennialists say, or after the thousand years, as the postmillennialists say? Will it be pre or post the thousand year period? Now that's a question that has basically divided the opinion of Christians on the doctrine of end times. Let's look then at the biblical case for postmillennialism. The essence of postmillennialism is optimism. Both the pre- and amillennialists are pessimistic about the end of the age. They believe that as the Lord's return approaches, this sinful world will become darker and darker and go deeper and deeper into its iniquity and rebellion against God and against Christ. It will become more and more like the days of Noah when God repelled in his holiness by the sinfulness of mankind, poured out his judgment upon this world. And to be fair, seeing the present state of the world and looking at its continuing trajectory into more and more degradation and rebellion, we wonder what there is to be optimistic about. Yet the postmillennialist sees not just the sinfulness of man, but he sees the power of God to do what he has ordained, to bring salvation to sinners, as he has promised in his word. So he believes that when Christ returns, it is to a world that has been largely Christianized. Now that doesn't imply that everyone in the entire world will be a Christian. It doesn't mean that every ruler in every land will rule with biblical standards. It doesn't mean that there will be a time when all sin will be abolished. Lorraine Buettner in his book The Millennium writes that evil in all its many forms eventually will be reduced to negligible proportions. That Christian principles will be the rule, not the exception. That Christ will return to a truly Christianized world. It's to that optimistic overview of the promises of God that we must turn to to find the biblical case for postmillennialism. Let's start with creation and the fall. Consider, for example, the optimism of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We call this verse the Proto-Euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. The verse there says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here's the first mention of victory in Christ. And then we come to the time of the patriarchs. We know that God established optimistic promises in the covenants that he made with the early patriarchs in Israel. Let's think just about the promise made to Abraham, that in his seed all nations would be blessed. Paul expands on this in the book of Romans when he applies that promise to Christ. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And then, of course, the Psalms are full of optimistic messianic promises, full of hope. Hope that Christ would ultimately have victory in this present world. 
In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 66, say to God, How awesome are your works! Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Psalms full of hope for the future. What about the prophets? You've only got to think of Isaiah. Isaiah 2, showing how all the nations will flow into the church in verse 2 to 4. Read the passage. When we come to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels identified himself with the positive prophecies of the Old Testament. He is the inheritor of the Davidic covenant who reigns on David's throne. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the kingdom parables of Jesus are full of optimism when it comes to the spread of the gospel. The gospel is like a man sowing seed in Matthew 13, verse 3 to 23. And when that seed falls on prepared ground, it takes root and it grows. The parable of the mustard seed illustrates the gradual nature of that growth from a tiny seed to a massive mature plant. And then there's the Apostle Paul. In his letters, Paul takes an extremely optimistic view of the future. He argues, for example, that Christ already has all authority in heaven and earth. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, he says that he has put all things under his feet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27, he repeats the same promise. And then he says, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 to 10. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Paul's masterpiece of optimism for the future is of course found in Romans chapter 11. And you can find the podcast dealing with Romans chapter 11 on the Semper Reformata podcast on your podcast app. In that passage, Paul puts forward the idea that one day all of Israel, all of God's chosen people, will be gathered in. I think though if you were to ask a post-millennialist to choose a single text to express the optimism about the coming revival that they see happening prior to the coming of Christ, it would probably be the Great Commission. That charge given by Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection. Let me read it to you from Matthew 28 verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think about the confidence in that. I think if you're going to do an exegesis of the Great Commission, the key word to note in the Great Commission is the word all. For it tells us that Jesus has all authority. It tells us that we are to go to all nations. It tells us that we are to observe all things and that he is with us always. All of this is going to happen before the end of the world. So Jesus has all authority. When we look at the spiritual condition of this world, do we not forget sometimes that Christ has more authority in this world than any government? We ought not to forget that. He has more authority than any lobby group, any spiritual influence. He is our king, and he is also the rightful king and ruler of this world. And he has the power and the authority to bring about in this world whatever he desires and wills. And that authority is given to him. Before the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples that he had no power of himself. John chapter 5 and verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. He had to do the will of the Father. And yet simultaneously, in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he was able to say, I and my Father are one. But in the Great Commission that has changed, all authority has now been given to Jesus. What's changed? What's different? It's the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the proof given by God that he is the king. It's the proof that all authority rests on his shoulders. It was what was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, you'd almost think that verse had been written by a post-millennialist. Later on, Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So Jesus has all authority given to him by his Father. And the extent of that authority, the extent of Christ's reigning authority, his mighty rule, is not just confined, according to the postmillennialist, to the heavenly realms or to the spiritual kingdom of the church, 
but to this present world, even the world that has rejected him and sold itself to the authority of Satan is ultimately under the root of Christ, who when this time is right will bring about God's sovereign will. So he has all authority and he commissions us to go to all nations. It's an unrestricted mission. We're to take the gospel to every nation under the sun. It includes evangelism, of course it does, but it also includes discipleship, making these newly converted believers into serious disciples with all that involves, with the costs that it imposes on one's life. And it's about salvation too, for baptism is included here as part of that discipleship, pointing us to Christ who washed away their sins in his own blood on the cross. So the gospel is being proclaimed in word and in sacrament in this great commission. And we're to teach them to observe all things. Now we must teach others as Christ has taught us. And he is with us always. As we go among the nations of the world bringing people not just into a relationship with Christ but bringing them under the rule of his kingly authority as disciples we have the promise of Christ that he is in our midst, that he is with us, that he is exercising his kingly presence. Now we would all believe that, but post-millennialists will point to the concluding phrase to demonstrate that all of these commands and promises are for now, before the end of the age, before the Lord returns. The nations would be evangelised, they would be brought into the kingdom of God. They will acknowledge Jesus as their king. They will bow to his authority in humble obedience and it will all occur prior to the general resurrection day. So the post-millennialist sees this thread of optimism running right throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. One of the modern day apologists for Postmillennialism is Kenneth L. Gentry, and he writes, We see the optimism of the eschatological hope. It flows out of the New Testament and begins making its life-giving presence felt in the New Testament experience. Truly, Jesus is Lord and rules over his conquering kingdom now. That all sounds very convincing, doesn't it? I mean, what's not to like about post-millennialism? What a glorious thought that the gospel will continue to spread and grow until the faithful people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, are united in praise and obedience to King Jesus. And surely we believe in the power and ability of God to bring about his purpose on earth. 
So why then am I still an amillennialist? What are the the difficulties and weaknesses in this post-millennialist scheme of time? I want to be fair to that viewpoint, but at the same time I don't want to gloss over the problems either. So there are some difficulties. Let's see if we can just bring a few to the surface. There's the problem of the continual suffering of the church. You see, the early church was persecuted fiercely, and that persecution has continued right throughout history. The church is suffering for the Saviour and is expected to suffer. Does Paul's description of our suffering as being in jars of clay, having the glory of God in in perishable vessels in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 to 12, sound like the way that a Christianized world would treat a Christian behavior. The post-millennialist may argue that Paul was speaking about his own experience and the experiences of the church before the golden age of the millennium, which is to come when the gospel reaches its fruition and Jesus reigns around the world. But then Paul argues that our suffering will continue right until the end of the age. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 to 23. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's a problem. In the midst of this great time of revival that's expected, how can the church be suffering to the end of the age? The second problem, and the one that really clinches it for me, is the expectation of Christ's soon return. That's the decisive argument as far as I'm concerned. In the New Testament, we're taught to expect the soon return of the Lord Jesus. And think of the nature of that return. It's to be sudden and it's to be unexpected. He's to return like a thief in the night. Because of its unexpected nature, we're to be ready, for the Lord's return is imminent. So watchfulness is a theme that runs through the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 to 12. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. James 5 and verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. First Peter 4 and verse 7 But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now the question arises. If we're waiting for a time of blessedness before the Lord's return, and we believe that he won't return until that time of great blessedness and peace and prosperity happens, Why would we need to be watchful? And yet we're told in the Bible to be careful because at such a time 
as we think not, the Lord will return. So the problem of the continual suffering of the church and the problem of the expectation of Christ's soon return are both difficult for the post-millennialist. Of course then there's the simple issue of the last days and the declension of man. There are passages in the Bible that depict the very last days as being evil and not times of prosperity and peace. For example, Mark 10 and verse 30, where it says, Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and then in the age to come, eternal life. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And yet if the world is totally Christianized, why would we need not to be conformed to it? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 tells us that the God of this age has blinded people's minds who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. Now again, to be very fair with our post-millennialist brothers and sisters, they will say that there will be a short time of apostasy and evil just before the Lord's return. When as the millennium period ends, Satan is released from the chains that presently restrict him. So on balance, while I do like post-millennialism, and while I'd really love for it to be correct, and I'd really like to see a time of great revival and spiritual peace and prosperity, I'd love to think that a day is coming when all the nations of the world would own Christ as Saviour, and that that would continue for a long period before the Lord returns. I can't quite manage to get round the arguments that show that Christ is coming back soon and that we can't. I can't quite manage to get round the arguments that show that Christ is returning soon and that we must be ready and that when he comes he will not find a society that is Christianized. I was talking to a post-millennialist. We agreed that the day of the Lord would be a general resurrection day. We agreed that the millennial reign of Christ would be an indefinite symbolic age of peace and prosperity. We agreed on the coming of Jesus with and for his saints on the last day. We found very little to disagree about and that's unsurprising. Do you know before the early 20th century the word amillennialism was not known. Amillennialists were simply regarded as being pessimistic postmillennialists. So our disagreement was only over that inevitable difference 
that lies between us. What the conditions in this world would be when Jesus returns. Would it be to a world filled with God's glory, with a triumphant worldwide church, united in praise of her King? Or would Christ return to a dark nightmare of fallen humanity, sunk deeply into sin and rebellion against God? The decision is yours. Perhaps amillennialists really are just pessimistic postmillennialists, and maybe postmillennialists are just optimistic amillennialists. What do you think? <laughs>